Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Matamor Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. And today is part two of the two-part series. So part one was the future of life on Earth, where we discussed how Earth came to be a planet in the first place, how life developed, how humans have affected that development, and how Earth may inevitably reach its own destruction. In part two, we're going to be exploring the future of life beyond Earth. So this is essentially the future of humanity, or you can include maybe we bring our dogs along with us, whatever other life forms, earthlings we bring with us. But this is the future of earthlings beyond Earth. So how might we colonize other planets? Are there other intelligent life forms out there? What is the best case, worst case, most likely scenario for the future of life in general, broadly speaking, across potentially millions of years. And in this discussion, as we had in our last discussion, joining us is Michael Kipp. Michael Kipp is a biologist and earth scientist, currently finishing his PhD at the University of Washington. His research focuses on the long-term co-evolution of life and its environment across Earth's history. Kipp, it's great to have you back on the pod. Yeah, thank you for letting me join once again. Awesome. So we already did a little bit of a recap of what happened last time, but just in case some people didn't listen to the last episode, what do you guys feel are the most likely ways that Earth would reach its final destruction? And also, what do you think it's going to be like for people that stick it out and stay on Earth until the bitter end? What kind of time frame are we talking? Because I think the shortest term... Yeah, I think the shortest term potentially catastrophic thing that could happen is or nuclear warfare, but that's a human thing. But if we're talking on an Hey, there was sorry, there was a little uh blip. So you wanted to start from what you said before? Yeah, so basically I think the most likely thing that's that could happen besides us wiping ourselves out with nukes is probably an asteroid hitting us but we just have no idea it's just kind of a shot in the dark well the most likely non-human cause perhaps right exactly because it seems like in the next hundred years i mean the, the things that we're going to have to overcome as far as ai autonomous weaponry right. nuclear proliferation potential mass disease, overpopulation, all of these things are going to come to a head very soon. So in my, my mind is more that if we make it the next hundred years, then we're in a, going to be in a much better position, you know, in the next thousand mm-hmm. or 10,000 or even, you know, a million years, let's say. But there, there will inevitably be an end of Earth. The sun will burn out at some point. Before that happens, it's going to get so hot that all of earth's oceans are going to evaporate there could be other other events such as an asteroid hitting earth the earth's magnetic field shifting there could be a solar flare there could be i mean a black hole we deemed was like not as likely because we'd be able to probably see that global epidemics so these are all possibilities that are scary to think about but good to be aware of All right, so let's move on to today's topic. So in today's topic, first I want to ask Kip, 
because you're in the earth science world and you're a bit more up on what the latest is as far as programs that are being planned for either exploring other planets, for colonizing Mars, for developing the moon as like a gas station or a tourist hub. So what are some of the exciting plans that we have outside of Earth? Right. That's a great uh, question because actually until relatively recently, NASA itself did not have necessarily a clear directed uh, goal of exploring Mars or even other planets um, or anything beyond the moon in our solar system with humans. Um, but at the moment, we actually do have a plan for doing so. Now, it's uh, definitely you know, a, a far-reaching proposal with very little that is set in stone. But what the general idea is, is to move through a few successive stages that will bring us closer to being able to explore other planets with humans. So we've already put humans on the moon. This was decades ago. Uh, and the first step, actually, towards getting humans to Mars would be to revisit the moon, both to demonstrate that we have the technology that we would need to put humans on and back off the surface of Mars, uh, and also to just establish, perhaps, uh, as you were saying before, this waypoint that is uh, the moon base, be it in orbit or on the surface. Um, but the larger goal is definitely to get humans on Mars. And right now, NASA advertises a goal of something like the early 2030s of a time frame where they would like to at least send the first exploratory mission of humans to Mars. Hmm. And what we're doing in the meantime is testing through our rovers, our telescopes, our orbiters, uh, the essential pieces of technology that will be required in that ultimate manned mission, and also using these uh, as opportunities to learn more about the variables that we don't fully understand that will become critical once humans are actually en route and on the surface of Mars. Yeah, and I've so I have heard the same thing that NASA is planning to go to Mars in the 2030s. I have heard that SpaceX's plan is going to happen a little bit sooner than that, that they're projecting 2026 as the first manned mission to Mars. But even before mm -hmm. that, I have I was just reading a couple of sort of milestones that we have in place in the next decade that I thought I'd just read through and maybe, you know, some of them you have some thoughts on. Mm -hmm. So in 2019, just next year, we're launching a James Webb Space Telescope that's supposed to be immensely more powerful than the Hubble. So that's going to be great just for our resolution of looking at space. In 2020, the Bigelow Space Hotel will be able to accommodate six insanely wealthy guests at a time. So that'll be cool. India is going to space by 2021. China is going to space and actually creating their own space station in 2022. The first cargo ship is going to Mars in preparation for colonization by SpaceX in 2024. And then, as I said, 2026 is when SpaceX plans their first manned mission to Mars. So this is, uh, so, and if they leave in 2026, they would land around 2027. So there's a lot happening in the next decade compared to what the last like three decades or five decades. An increase in the pace. And I think something that you noted there um, that is important is the parallel nature of these different timelines and sort of different speeds of the private industry versus the government-funded plans, uh, namely those of NASA. So like you're saying, um, NASA 
intends to, you know, at the earliest, put humans on the surface of Mars somewhere in the early 2030s. Of course, this could ultimately be later. Uh, the one step that they're taking, or at least the most immediate step they're taking towards that end, actually, is that in 2020, we're launching uh, the next rover. Uh, following up, it's the same sort of structure as the Curiosity rover, but the goals of this one scientifically are such that they're exploring the potential for in-situ resource utilization that would be relevant to future human exploration. They'll also be caching samples that are going to be returned to the Earth ultimately by an intermediate mission. So before the manned mission, they would send a mission that has the ability to land and then launch off of the surface of Mars, demonstrating for the first time that we could launch off of a different planet. Wow. Um, so that's the NASA time frame. 2020 rover, another mission to return samples after that, and then after that, a manned mission. And like you said, SpaceX is trying to move much faster. Um, there are a variety of reasons they can do that logistically um, as far as maybe most importantly not having to worry about um, some of the you know, occupational health and safety concerns that NASA does as a government agency. Um, but technologically, they're up against the same uh, battles that NASA is. And so that will be what's interesting, I think, to see is how that competition plays out. Right. And it's, and it's good to appreciate how difficult it is what what scientists are striving to do because you know launching off of another planet like mars for instance has much thinner atmosphere so there's much less cushion much less friction so when you're trying to like slow down a spaceship to land it's not like earth where you have this familiar feeling where you descend and you've got some air resistance and then you can land it's more like imagine almost like going into a vacuum where it's you got to be so precise. And I mean, the moon has an even thinner atmosphere. So I, I imagine the moon is probably good practice for, for doing that takeoff. Absolutely. The fact that we did that decades ago really speaks to just our technological capabilities as a species. And it's an inspiring thing to know that we can do. Um, so I think it's taking it to the logical next step to want to put you know, humans on Mars and we just have to the next round of challenges, both with getting the rockets there and back, and also with other things, uh, perhaps most foremost among, among them being uh, the radiation problem in space, which will be an unprecedented problem that these astronauts will face, more so than the, uh, the lunar missions. Right, that's interesting, because as an astronaut, you, you tend not to think about, or I guess like most kids when they're growing up and they're thinking, oh, I want to be an astronaut, they don't think about the fact that when you're out in space, all of these weird things happen to your body because you're so far away from your homeland. Like, they, like I've heard that there was one astronaut that went up for six months in the International Space Station, and he had 20-20 vision when he went up there. And by the time he got back, he had something like, like a 2100 vision. So he had terrible eyesight when he came back down. And it's because something about not having the gravity, mm -hmm. you're, you're just like, I mean, apparently it seems to be much worse for guys than it is for females. For whatever reason, there are much worse uh, effects on males than females. I think the big problem for females is that they tend to get tons of urinary tract infections. Mm. But like none of it's, oh, yeah. none of it's fun. That makes sense. 
I, I the other interesting wonder if, thing. like, what if they could do like a, an artificial gravity or something? Like, once we get to, or I, I guess you would have some gravity once you make it to Mars. But it seems like we would need to, you know, in the long term, we got to figure out some way to make it work for humans in the long term. Yeah, I mean, if you just have some sort of spinning object, I mean, some sort of force. That's what gravity is. You just need some sort of rotation that could create a gravity-like environment. And you can make that gravity as strong as you want. I think that's what you see in some of these sci-fi movies, of these massive spacecraft that have a rotating piece. Uh, the question is, this, the, it's a question of scale, whether that would actually be reasonable for the forthcoming missions to Mars. But when we consider the extremely long-distance future um, of a spacefaring species, yeah, these are things that need to be considered. Yeah, I've I've also been wondering about, you know, the fact that there are such different conditions on different planets, like from Mars to the moon to that one planet by Alpha Centauri, um, you know, some other planets we might be considering, is that the conditions are so different that, you know, once you have a couple thousand years, couple hundred thousand years, whatever, we could evolve into completely different species. And we could be the intelligent alien overlords that we're afraid of now. And I mean, because species never merge. Like you can't, you can't mate a mule with a donkey. You know, you, you, know, you can't mate a, a horse with a zebra. But you can create a mule from a horse and a donkey. You know, you can create new species um, like you can diverge off, I guess is what I'm saying, mm -hmm. into into more and more species. So it's yeah, I mean, similar to what you see in the evolution here on Earth, if there's some species that is off on some secluded island, it'll eventually diverge from everything on the mainland. This is just on a astronomical scale. Totally. For humans. Yeah, um, cool. So there's one other, before we get into more of the futuristic unknown questions, I want to ask about this project. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called Breakthrough Starshot. And basically, this is a project that aims to send a tiny spacecraft to Alpha Centauri star system, which is the nearest star other than Earth, or sorry, the nearest star other than the sun to Earth. And the goal is to find signs of habitable planets and potentially alien life 20 to 30 years after it's sent out. So it would be sent out in the 2030s. So let's say by 2050, we would, we would have some good intel. And it would be so small that it would be able to travel at 15% of the speed of light. So pretty fast by our standards. Still not that close to the speed of light, which we haven't found a way to get any faster than that. And whenever you increase the mass of an object, it's going to go more slowly because of Einstein's equation, you know, theory of relativity. So have you guys heard anything about this? Is there anything interesting you'd like to say about the challenge of finding life and how annoying it is to have to wait for so long and ways we might be able to get around these limitations? Well, I'll just give one piece of uh, well, background and discussion about that project, which is that part of what motivates it is the recent discovery in the last couple of years that around 
So the, it's a multi-star system that we were discussing. The uh, near Alpha Centauri, there's uh, a brown dwarf star, M dwarf, Proxima Centauri, which hosts some planets, which were unbeknownst to us as of a few years ago. And recent discoveries have shown, basically, that there are not only planets orbiting that star, but that they are at the right distance from the star, given what we know about its uh, stellar physics, that it should be able to support liquid water at the surface. In other words, it's in the habitable zone that we search for. Uh, and we've been searching thousands and thousands of planets over the last uh, couple decades to see if any in the observable range of our uh, instruments fall within the habitable zone. What was so exciting about this is that it is literally the closest star to our sun, and we find a habitable zone planet. And so all of a sudden, when you just, a big problem for our you know, astrobiological study of the universe was that we had a, a statistical sample size of one for inhabited planet on Earth. And when you move to the adjacent star and all of a sudden find another habitable zone planet, it just opens up this realm of possibilities that perhaps they're quite common. So people got reasonably excited. And what we want to do is study this in more detail. One method is perhaps the, you know, the expensive, the difficult one, but the the up close and personal one, which is to send something there, and that's what this breakthrough uh, Starshot initiative aims to do. They, like you're exactly saying, send this tiny fleet of very small um, robots, essentially. Uh, we sort of joke and call them sending a fleet of iPhones to mm. <laughs> uh, Proxima Centauri, where perhaps there is an inhabited planet. Um, and that's as fast as we could send anything there, and it would be really cool to have something get close, take a snapshot. Um, the thing is, it will be careening past that uh, star and its planet, also at close to one-fifth the speed of light. And so the observing time uh, is not nearly what we get for compared to what we have, say, with uh, telescopic measurements. And so the flip side of that, which is already ongoing and will continue, is that there are telescopic observations of this uh, planet and uh, its stellar system that are ongoing, and we're trying to characterize the composition uh, of its atmosphere, ultimately. The, the one issue is that, uh, unlike planets that are um, transiting, that is, that they pass in between our uh, plane of view and the star, so that we can actually see light passing through the atmosphere. Mm. The, these planets, unfortunately, do not transit, and so we can't use that method of uh, measuring the composition of the atmosphere. But there are other creative ways to try to remotely observe something about this planet. Um, and that might inform us as to whether there's life there. And so there's sort of the, the big money, exciting way of looking at it, and there's the slower, methodical way. And I think we're going to need to take both extremes mm. and also approaches in between to figure out you know, something about our potentially closest inhabited uh, planetary neighbor. So what can something so small that's able to travel at 15% of the speed of light, what kind of information can that gather? So once it reaches there, uh, you know, the Alpha Centauri Proxima planet 30 years from now, 20 years from now, is it imagery? Is it sound? Is it going to, I mean, I, I don't imagine it's going to actually take samples. Like what kind of information might we be able to gather? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't specifically know what they would be planning to put on these. I, I think uh, that that's actually something they're trying to sort out right now. What would be the most information they could hope to obtain from these Um from this fleet and and just in general i think the sorts of uh, observing that it would be doing is uh 
basically spectral information, or in other words, it's observing things that we can already see remotely that is uh, wavelengths of light you're observing. So this is all the way ranging from you know, uh, visible spectrum, the infrared, into longer wavelengths. Uh, there are a variety of things that it can tell you about the composition of a planet, the surface features, so on and so forth. And to make those observations up close would be an enormous advantage, but there it comes with the trade-off of moving fast, right. being a very, very small um, uh, machine compared to these enormous telescopes. Uh, and so it's, yeah, it's on that end of the spectrum as far as what we could expect to get from it. But I think we'll have to stay tuned to see what they ultimately put on this. Maybe we should send out like a dozen of them, all with different capabilities going at different speeds with different types of information extraction. Well, in any case, they would be sending a fleet of many of them because, in fact, most of them would not make it. Um, uh. There's, It's a statistical uh, argument, basically, that if you send enough of them, you will get one or a few that end up where you want them to go, partially due to just the physical separation that if they have slightly different trajectories and you integrate that over that much distance they could be wildly off and also there's just the chance that they run into a bit of space dust uh floating and, and, matter between here and there that would just right. for such a small thing do it in so they will send out many and would the would the uh propulsion mechanism be the same as a normal spacecraft or would we be doing some cool things like having solar panels and that kind of well, stuff uh, that's another very interesting piece of this puzzle is that they are very small and they would not use the sort of propulsion that we think of when we think of rocket fuel uh, or even other thruster-based uh, propulsion. What's been proposed to my knowledge, and again, I think this whole project is still in, in development and so we'll have to see what it ultimately ends up looking like, but there has been a proposal to, in fact, propel these uh, through a high-powered, highly-focused laser Wow. Um, so in other words, you it's a similar idea when you hear people talk about uh, a solar sail, but that's a very different spatial scale where you have a very large uh, sail, so to speak, that's using the solar wind to gently propel it, and it can actually achieve quite a high speed. This would basically use an artificial laser that we would beam, highly focused, so it's extremely high energy. And you can accelerate these because they're so small and because you'd have sufficiently high energy to about one-fifth the speed of light. Um, so that's another interesting piece of technology that would be uh, developed and, and honed if this um, project actually comes to fruition in the coming decades. That's incredible. So while we're exploring these other planets with these new high-tech probes, we're also focusing on the immediate planets nearby. Uh, specifically Mars, also the Moon. So we should talk a little bit about that. I've read that it takes about 100,000 years to fully terraform Mars, at least with our current technology. I mean, there could always be some breakthrough that, you know, 50 years from now we never would have dreamed of. But I'd like to talk a little bit about what our end goal is with Mars, why it's so crucial for us to go there, and what are the steps that we're taking to initially colonize Mars and then terraform Mars. So what, what are, your, what are the, the key factors, I guess? Like, where do we start as far as terraforming Mars? And then what does that look like in the long term over the next 100,000 years? Yeah, so 
I, I mean, it ultimately comes to the question like you were posing there of what our end goal is with Mars. Um, there are sort of two ways we could potentially look at this. Either we are trying to explore and even uh, remain on the planet with some duration as visitors in a hostile environment where we carry, so to speak, our environment with us in a box, or do we try to turn it into an Earth 2.0? Uh, for the sake of discussion, let's consider the latter possibility mm -hmm. that we would attempt to terraform Mars. Um, it certainly is a, a quite a tall task to try to make the Mars look make Mars look anything like the Earth. Um, the biggest difference, if you were to just consider some of the physical parameters of Mars as a planet versus Earth, first off, the thickness of its atmosphere is vanishingly small. It's near about six millibars compared to the Earth's one bar atmosphere, so it's uh, less than a percent as thick. Uh, and partly related to that is the fact that, that uh, Mars is much cooler as a planet. So while Earth has a mean global temperature of about 15 degrees Celsius, Mars is about minus 60 Celsius globally yeah, average. Yeah, that, that always surprised me because I feel like when people think of Mars, they think of it as this red hot fireball. But actually, it's only red because there's lots of iron in the dusty sand that gets whirled around. And it's actually a pretty frigid place. Yes, exactly. It's very cold. And what we would need to do to terraform it, to make it like the Earth, is to make it warm, mainly, among other reasons, but most importantly, perhaps, so that liquid water can persist at the surface. So because global any water warming, essentially. We want to enact global warming on Mars. We should, exactly. send, we should send Scott Pruitt there to, to man that mission. If only <laughs> we could just divert all of our anthropogenic emissions directly in a pipeline to Mars. Uh, if only that were feasible, then it would perhaps be a, a nice place to shunt our excess carbon emissions. So this is one instance where, yes, the intentional introduction of greenhouse gases is among the top ideas of how we would go about doing it. The question then is the time scales and, and the, the just spatial and uh, scale of, is it possible? Could we actually achieve enough of a climatic change to make it livable for humans. Um, I think that's where it gets pretty difficult. What about something, so, this is a crazy idea that I just thought of, but what about rather than making Mars match humans' ideal, atmosphere, ideal environment, why not make humans match Mars' ideal environment? Meaning, like, could there ever be a way where we could genetically engineer a human that's able to breathe Mars's atmosphere and, and, and live there in a way where they're not open to as many of the horrible effects? Well, unfortunately, I think a lot of our biochemical demands are so deeply rooted in the way that our machinery works down to a cellular level that we couldn't undo some of those things. Um, now, that's because humans are biologically complex systems uh, we just have lots going on, lots to attend to. It would be a lot to take care of. To but make we could us engineer like maybe a, a mouse or like a nematode that's perfect for Mars and then l let them loose. I'd maybe start with <laughs> more tempered expectations of a microbe that is, is geared for uh, Mars because even that right now is a, a bit much to ask. Um, again, radiation being foremost among the concerns of how something is going to survive a long time scales on the Martian surface. So what if we did that? What if we just put a bunch of microbiomes 
like we can just like you know launch them on a spacecraft like even if it just crashes the microbiomes will spread around i mean i guess that would even take a, a ton of time or is there another angle that you would recommend as far as how to spread some biotic life to get you know get some I mean, I guess first you need the greenhouse gas emissions and then you need the biotic life to create the oxygen. Yeah, exactly. So there's sort of two sides to that, what you just said there. The first, like you're saying, is that in some of these proposed terraforming scenarios, um, what is suggested is that some introduction of uh, man-made greenhouse gases is actually the, the really bad stuff, the, the chlorofluorocarbons, the really potent things that Mars actually doesn't, well, that don't occur naturally. Um, so to speak, without without human intervention. Um, if we could introduce some of those, initiate some level of warming such that ice starts to melt, you start to get some surface water, perhaps then you could introduce some microbial communities and try to get an ecosystem going. But again, the, you know, the people who seriously try to think about this and throw out numbers of, uh, about timescales are talking tens of thousands, hundred thousand years to even get to the full potential of the surface of Mars, which may not be anything that's um, ultimately even hospitable to humans. But the flip side of that, and one that should be borne in mind in this discussion and in this, this larger topic that we're talking about here, is that currently there exists a planetary protection agency whose mission it is to see to it that we in fact do not infect other planets with Earth-bound life. Um, this is, if you want to look for a historical parallel, it's generally looked down upon that life from certain continents, and I'm talking at this point about human life, uh, colonized other parts of the world and basically repopulated it uh, in, the, in Earth's past in a you know, very destructive fashion, the, the sort of that we're afraid of happening to us from alien civilizations, perhaps. Um, so there has been developed this imperative that is one that we should, in fact, not infect other planets with life. And it, it, it's an ethical issue, not a scientific issue. It depends on what we are aiming to get out of these other planets in our solar system. Um, and I think this speaks directly to the fate of, well, not just human, but Earth-bound life on cosmic timescales. Do we relegate ourselves to a single planet? Do we explore but in a sterile fashion, just to go uh, look and learn? Or do we actually just colonize passively or actively uh, the rest of the solar system? So, Right, and aside from the ethical implications of not wanting to infect other planets, I feel like on a practical level, it'd be nice to be able to explore and extract some of the substances from other planets as they originally occur, and who knows what we might find up there, if it might be something that is immensely valuable back here on Earth for creating some new type of technology. Or So yeah, I think it is, it is a good practice to make sure we're not infecting anything outside of Earth unless we really go all in and decide, okay, we're going to terraform this planet and make it as, as close to Earth as we can. It's true. It's something that needs to be held at the front of these discussions because... If we go carelessly, it's something that will happen passively. Uh, and people sort of, well, not really joke, but lament that when we talk about whether there's life on Mars or not, uh, we in fact know there is because there are microbes that escaped our sterilization protocols that are on the Mars rovers. 
uh, oh, we've been able to calculate that they would, while radiation would uh, sterilize much of the surface in transit, there, just statistically speaking, are almost certainly microbes that survived that journey. And perhaps they couldn't propagate much. There's not much liquid water, not much uh, energetic or carbon substrate to use to build some biomass for them. But we have definitely brought living uh, earthbound life to Mars already. And that would only be uh, more so the case if we were to send large-scale human missions. So it's something that needs to not just be an afterthought, but actually something that we decide, I think, hand-in-hand with these missions is how are we approaching this um, exploration of Mars. Right. So before we move on to the Fermi paradox and all of those questions, is there anything you guys want to say about the moon and, and what we might do as far as developing the moon, either for tourism or as a launch pad or as, I mean, I guess you already talked about it's the perfect testing ground for being able to land on a planet and then launch off of it. It's also a great hot, you know, partway point where we can fuel spaceships on the, on, on the moon and therefore not have to have as much fuel on board with the, you know, not have as much of a cargo load initially going out. Are there any other benefits or anything else you're you're aware of as far as what we plan to do with the moon? I mean, there's also the question of who owns the moon? Who owns any of this? Like, can we basically just go up there and put up some, some military uh, bases and say, hey, sorry, China, India, we know you guys had plans to go here, but not anymore. This is our place. Like, what, like what's going on there? That's what the Space Force is for. Yeah, Space Force. <laughs> I can't believe that nope. a president created the Space Force and I don't and it's a president that I don't like. <laughs> Did not see that one coming. <laughs> but the nice thing about the moon too is that it has lower gravity. So it's easier to launch rockets from the moon than from Earth. Right. Would you guys ever go to the space tourism? If you had a chance, I mean, I guess you're doing it, you're risking your eyesight and there are some other drawbacks, <laughs> not to mention it would probably cost like at least a million bucks. Yeah, I have to say, fortunately, I don't have the kind of money on hand to have to think about whether I'll go on the first round of space tourism. And so perhaps I'll revisit that question towards the end of my life and maybe it'll be a commonplace practice then. And sure, if it's uh, a retirement community safe enough. The moon. Yeah, you know, if at that point they've ironed out all the bugs, then maybe I'll reconsider. But I don't see myself trying to leave, uh, you know, Earth's gravitational pull anytime in the next couple decades. Right. Well, as far as the economics reasons, I mean, Musk has said that, you know, his goal is to put a million people on Mars, basically so we can have an external hard drive of humanity in case something happens to the original files, be it an asteroid or nuclear war or something else. And the way he plans to get people incentivize or get people to go there is he basically wants to make the cost of going to Mars the same as the cost of buying a house on Earth. So if he can make the cost of going to Mars like thirty thousand dollars or whatever that that is in you know in twenty forty dollars or, or twenty thirty dollars, then that would be enough incentive. He feels like for enough people, at least a million people, to go there. Sort of similar to how, you know, it costs a decent amount of money to go to the New World from people in Europe, 
but once it reached a level where it was about the same as starting on you know starting a new life in Europe then a lot of people were willing to take that risk and, and be part of history. All right, well, let's move on to the Fermi Paradox because that's a super interesting topic. I don't know if one of you guys want to explain the Fermi Paradox. I mean, I guess I can give it a, give it a shot. But So basically, the argument goes that if there are so many stars in the universe and there are so many planets that could potentially host life for each of those stars, and given how long the universe has been around, you know, more than 13 billion years, then it stands to reason that if even one of these planets on even one of these stars achieved technical sophistication, then we would see some sign of it somewhere. Like we'd, we'd be able to see, you know, read some radio signals. We would see some sort of, um, you know, asymmetric light signals being going on or, or we have some sign of life. But the fact that we don't see anything leads us to this question of, first, are we alone? And if so, how can we be alone given, given just the sheer numbers of how many stars and planets there are out there and how much time has elapsed since the birth of the universe? So what do you got? What do you guys think? I mean, what what do you know, Kip? You first. Like, what's your scientific opinion on on what the most likely explanations are for this? And are there some factors that that we're not considering in in asking this question? Well, I think to approach it scientifically, you need to give yourself a few uh, possible, you know, viable hypotheses and try to falsify those with the with the evidence we have. Um, so I, I can think of just a, a few easy, potentially easy answers and then see what we have in ways of evidence to uh, negate them. So perhaps uh, we don't see anything out there because it just never existed. Well, that, that's not very helpful. That's, uh, it would be very difficult to negate um, by way of making any observations. Perhaps we don't see anything out there because, okay, life develops on other planets like it's, it has developed on the Earth. Um, but you reach this technological stage, we start to be able to uh, broadcast things into space, consider space travel, all this wonderful stuff, but we, and then we just blow ourselves up very quickly. Nothing, these civilizations don't last very long. The amount of time of a technological civilization persisting on a planet is maybe so short that there's never any overlap. Uh, that would be unfortunate. Perhaps, in a more optimistic case, they're out there, these intelligent civilizations, but they're using a technology that is just unintelligible by us, and we are so primitive that we are basically as unrecognizable to them as us trying to deduce the presence of a, you know, a pre-industrial human civilization. That's what, um, uh, that's what Bill Nye, his solution to the Fermi Paradox is that, hey, we've only been listening for 50 years, and we might not be listening in the right way. We assume they use radio, we assume all of these things, but we might just not be listening in the way that they'd be able to emit some sort of signal that we could perceive. Yeah, so given all of those options, uh, unfortunately I'm here to say that we can't disprove any of them, and so they're all viable. So really the only way forward, I think, for you know, at least removing this from the realm of speculation is to continue 
observing, looking, listening in the ways we, that we can. So radio astronomy being the the sort of first popular, well-implemented well way that we were doing that, we should certainly continue to do that. We've by no means exhaustively mapped uh, the sky using radio astronomy um, surveys to search for signs of intelligent life. But if we don't see it there, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And so unfortunately, it just leaves us having to anticipate other ways that it would manifest itself. Um, but really, I just think that, yeah, my approach to this would be continue observing uh, okay, so in a creative fashion. On an unscientific note, what do you feel in your inner depths of your soul to be the most likely scenario if you had to pick one as far as why we're not able to or why we haven't so far perceived any signs of life outside of Earth? Oh, that, that pulls me out of my, uh, my, <laughs> my safe zone of what I, what I can say. But what, what I'll throw out just as a thought experiment is like you were prefacing the whole Fermi paradox thing with uh, just the, the numbers that we're dealing with. The sheer number of not just even galaxies, but within galaxies, the hundreds of billions of stars each, now that we know the occurrence rate of well, fairly well of planets and not just of planets in general, but of potentially habitable planets uh, and potentially of the ability of life to get started on those planets and persist on planetary time scales. It all starts to add up actually that it is statistically very plausible that there are many, many inhabited planets. Now that doesn't say anything about technological life. It just says about, you know, organic life perhaps being uh, it would not come as a shock to me to find that that was rampant in the universe, although we certainly have no way of proving that it is right now. But the big unknown, I think the big, the biggest leap in that uh, discussion right now is understanding the transition into the technological type of civilization and either the maintenance of that or the transition out of it, that, that being the end. So the, the duration part of that equation um, for a technological species how much of a planet's history does that encompass and what does it look like across that history? I think those are things that we need to uh, really constrain. So I, I don't feel like I can make any uh, speculation about that side of it, but, but just from a perspective of life in the universe or organic life, um, it's, you know, sort of excitingly shaping up to look like it, we have reason to believe it's not that rare. But again, I think we will need, to, we're coming up on a crucial decade or two of observations to help us constrain that parameter right there. Got it. Justin, what are your thoughts on the Fermi paradox? What do you think is the most, most likely scenario for why we haven't perceived any intelligent life thus far? So I would echo a lot of the things Kip said, but also it's based on some probability that there there's life somewhere else but we might be overestimating that probability for a lot of different reasons for example just within our galaxy we're in the very outer skirts of the galaxy maybe towards the center there's so much debris that any planet that could inhabit biological life is just being demolished constantly or being wiped out constantly and it always has to restart so it never gets to the later stages that we've reached. Mm. Or 
I mean, just think of Earth again, just the first, or at least what we think is some of the first biological um, creatures were the dinosaurs, or, okay, the first large biological creatures. Obviously, right. there was bacteria, protists, all that good stuff. Um, but I don't think the dinosaurs would have ever created some sort of technology. I mean, maybe that's me underestimating where evolution would have brought them. But right. what what's the probability of whatever happened to our lineage? Why can we use tools? And how unlikely is that? And right. how unlikely is it that anyone can even make it that far? And maybe there's just some underestimation of how unlikely that is. We got um, the human secret sauce that we can change <laughs> our own environment. And that's the something that's not quite common. Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that we just don't know, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. Although, I, I, I'm more willing to go out on a limb and say what I would think to be the reason. So, first of all, I cannot believe that we are the only intelligent life out there. I think it's possible that we might be the only intelligent life in our local area, like in the Milky Way, which is really all that we could explore with a spaceship anyways, given how fast the universe is expanding. So if you imagine that the universe is expanding like an inflating balloon, although any individual part of that balloon is still attracted towards each other, if there's like, you know, lumps inside the balloon or whatever, our little lump is the only area that we even could explore. So I do think it's possible that in that lump that there's the only intelligent life is us. But I, I've got to believe that there's some intelligent life somewhere in the universe out there. And I guess my feeling for why we wouldn't be able to see any signs of, of life is either the great filter is behind us like like you said there's some sort of secret sauce in humans that makes us different as far as our being able to change our environments so drastically beyond what was happening with the dinosaurs or, or any of our other predecessors but i also feel like i also feel like there's a possibility that technology will inevitably lead to the destruction of the civilization that creates it, or, which is a better way of looking at it, that technology would lead to a situation where you create your own reality. It's like, why battle the speed of light and go exploring other planets that takes immense amounts of times when you could literally create any version of reality, your own universe, right there where you are? You know, if you, could if you could build a Dyson sphere around your star and have all of, your, all of your citizens hooked up to this virtual reality where each of them can be truly a god and live for what feels like eternity. You know, if it's around a red dwarf, they could live for like 10 trillion years around this, around this Dyson sphere and have eternal bliss from, from how they experience it. It's like, why would I waste all this time and energy going to explore other dead rocks? You know, maybe some 
maybe some uh, you know very primitive species when I could literally simulate as many different versions of reality as I want and live all of my dreams and battle dragons and do whatever you could possibly imagine. And the other one of the other things about the advancing technology, just to kind of take this in another direction, is like Kip was saying, there might not be very much overlap. I mean, how much time have we spent sending radio waves out into space? Yeah, like fifty like, years. I mean, we could overestimate that to a hundred. That's so small in the grand scheme of things. And let's say, I mean, we have some sort of exponential progress. If we only use radio signals for the next hundred years, and then we find something that's much better, that's only two hundred years that we have to detect anything else that uh, could be sending, you know, some radio waves. Yeah, it's well, probably likely that we never overlapped with those, and we're just that exponential curve is just going to bring us to that next stage very quickly. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point because, you know, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but we as humans only have such a small slice of the collective consciousness pie. We can only see so many wavelengths of light. We can only hear so many wavelengths of sound. We can only experience three dimensions, whereas if you believe in string theory, there are something like 11 dimensions that we're living in. Neil deGrasse Tyson, other eminent scientists have come out and said, we are probably living in a, a higher dimensional uh, universe, and we just don't know it because our senses can't tell yet. Yeah, and, I mean, even if it's only four, Right, so they, could be, they could be sending us these, these uh, immensely sophisticated image images like visual wavelengths that we're not even we're not even trying to uh, look for so i think the the other question that's really interesting to me is not are there other intelligent life out there that are three-dimensional you know flesh and bones guys like us like but the more interesting question is are there other life forms out there that occupy different dimensions than we do and maybe they're literally like there's one sitting next to me right now, but because he's in another dimension, I, I just can't perceive him. And maybe when you get some, when you have some weird experiences like deja vu or when you take psychedelics or maybe when, you, when you're in some sort of altered state, you get some sort of feeling like there might be some, something more to the reality that you're experiencing. And, you know, it seems crazy to think that given how little we know, to assume that we are the only beings occupying any of these dimensions. Yeah, I mean, with, with uh, if you think of, it's kind of easier to generalize to different dimensions if you think about going from two to three dimensions. And, you know, we don't need to get into this right. topic well, they, too much. But I mean, um, it's, it's relevant as far as self-driving cars. Or, or no, sorry, not self-driving cars, but uh, the Boring Company, because that's one of the things Elon Musk talked about with the in the Joe Rogan podcast, mm. where he got crucified for taking a hit of legal marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was talking about how we live in a three-dimensional world. Our cities are built on three dimensions. We have these giant skyscrapers 
with floors and floors and floors of offices and floors and floors and other buildings of apartments. And yet our transportation is two dimensional. We just are on this flat surface. So of course there's this horrendous traffic. The way to get around it is to go into three dimensions where we go down below the surface of the earth tunnel and we could have, you know, um, dozens of layers of, of these tunnels where we can all be moving at the same time because we're in the third dimension. Now imagine if you go into yet another dimension, it would be the same kind of leap as going from two to three, only it's difficult because we can't comprehend it because we're not, we're not living in that four dimensional reality. And you could theoretically take this all the way up to 11 dimensions. Yeah, I mean, just mathematically speaking, the the later dimensions, like all subsequent dimensions, occupy a much larger space than previous dimensions. So let's say you had an Earth-sized uh, Earth-sized sphere, and you placed that on a piece of paper. It would only make contact with that piece of paper, that two D paper, in one single point. So, like, that's kind of a contrived example, but when you think about um, dimensions, it's good to think of these later dimensions as having occupying a much, much larger space than anything in the previous dimensions. Right. Well, I I love the the scene in. Do you guys you guys have seen it in or, um, Interstellar? Interstellar. Yeah. So he goes into the fourth dimension towards the end of that where he's basically, it's almost like a library, and he's able to experience any of the different memories that he's had. And not only that, but he's actually able to interact with the people in those time, place, uh, you know, points in time and, and space, and actually affect what's going on there. I think what, what would, you know, taking that one step further would be, we have this sense of free will and we could debate whether or not that's, that's just an illusion, but it seems like our intuition is that we could have done, we could have taken different paths in life. You know, people ask you, Oh, where did you go to college? And you're like, Oh, well, I could have gone here. could have gone there, ended up going this place. And in your mind, there is a very real possibility that you went to that other college and that probably would have changed what friends you met you know, what major you might have taken, who you might have fallen in love with and gotten married with, who, the kids you would have had as a result of that, and the entire lineage of kids and the future of humanity all gets woven into these, these, uh, these choices. So I imagine the fourth dimension as something that where not only is it like you can access different times and places all at the same time, but you could also access different versions of reality you know, like the many worlds theory. And I think that would be in line with what you were saying about the earth only touching one point on a piece of paper and how much more expansive it is to go up an extra level of dimensionality. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about that stuff kind of out there because nobody really knows. We just can't think that way. Right. But it's a fun thought experiment. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting to talk about. Okay, so now we should get into the future scenarios. So looking in the broadest possible scope of where humanity can go, let's say a million years from now, where do you believe 
humanity, or let's just not say humanity. What do you believe will be the future of life beyond Earth in the best possible case scenario? Let's start with that, and then we'll go into the worst case. Best case, I think it would be awesome if we could terraform. It seems unlikely to me, though, uh, because with with the terraforming Mars, for example, like Kip was saying, it, Mars doesn't even have much of an atmosphere. And from my understanding, that's because it doesn't have a magnetosphere, which is basically the molten core of like four billion years ago or something like that. It just cooled. And now all this solar radiation is just bombarding Mars. I mean, there could be a way to really make a sphere, or sorry, some, an atmosphere on Mars. But I think um, if we could make an atmosphere on these different planets, or maybe even we go the other way and go to Venus and try to cool the planet, it has a very strong atmosphere, so maybe that's a possibility. Um, but it would be really nice to move beyond this solar system, I think, because even if we're a multi-planetary species and there's some, it, well, let's assume we're all we're in the same solar system. If there's a rogue planet that comes through and it's a huge planet and it just kind of comes through our solar system, it could throw everybody's orbit off and all the planets, you know, become rogue planets or something along those lines and everyone dies even though we're a multi-planetary species. I think the end goal is to be either a multi-solar system species, maybe multi-galaxy, or we could just be a species that's flying around in giant, almost planet like um, space stations and then we can easily avoid anything that comes our way I like it Kip what's your best case scenario for the future of life beyond earth you know the, the easiest thing to say about the best case is that it's still going in the way that we <laughs> sort of would like to see it that uh, there's not just some sort of microbial sludge hanging on for dear life but We've continued the lineage of something that, at least in form and function, uh, somewhat resembles what we, you know, do today and strive to do as a species. Um, and on the scale on which that would be occurring, whether on Earth, other planets in our solar system, beyond, I think what would be really neat. Uh, now again, we were looking millions of years in the future here. Um, what would be neat is if the way that's expanding is informed by our knowledge at that point of the distribution of life elsewhere in our galaxy and beyond. Um, if, so, you know, in the most optimistic of possible cases, there are known inhabited planets elsewhere, and that could guide us as to where we might direct our efforts, um, places to explore. So um, it, that would, you know, getting into the realm of speculation be, I think, the coolest possibility. Cool. What do you think, Matamor? So mine's a bit more drama uh, dramatic, <laughs> as you might expect. But it's so imagine in the year 2045 or 2050 or something, we achieve the singularity where the emergence of infotech and biotech merge together and allow us to achieve 
results that previously wouldn't have seemed possible. And in the long run, what this allows us to do is it allows us to find other planets, to do all of the things you guys are talking about, terraforming, maintaining our way of life, all the things that make us happy. Part of this best case scenario is also that there is, in fact, intelligent life outside of Earth. But this intelligent life is entirely beneficial to us. It's not at all hostile to us. And further, this intelligent life occupies a higher dimensional plane. So we're able to learn from them and we're eventually able to sort of figure out the secrets of higher dimensionality and to expand our horizons in that way combined with the emerge, you know, with infotech, biotech, singularity and, and all of that that's going on. And the end result of what I imagine is that we have the option or maybe we're doing both where we have a, we're a multi-planetary species. So we're, we're exploring many different planets and environments. Simultaneously, we're also are creating a virtual environment with a Dyson sphere or something similar where anyone can live eternally in bliss and be a god and create whatever they want and experiment whatever they want. And future humans are basically given the option and they say, look, you can live in the quote unquote real world, explore other planets in the physical domain, help out with all the initiatives that are going on here. Or if you would prefer, you can just hook yourself up to this VR system and live in bliss and do literally whatever you want, whatever you can imagine. So I think like, the future, like the best case for me is having the ultimate amount of choice and the ultimate amount of understanding. And so that, that draws in singularity, having other intelligent life, higher dimensionality, being able to have a virtual reality that's whatever you want and exploring multi-planets and other solar systems. So I want the whole shebang. <laughs> <laughs> do, you think, do you think we can get to that multi-dimensional or higher dimensional plane without meeting another intelligent species? Because my understanding, well, I mean, with computers especially, they can handle higher dimensions just fine. I mean, they can handle as many dimensions as they have memory, as much as there is memory. Um, so if we become a cyborg-like species, we might be able to handle some of these right. higher dimensions like you're describing. Yeah, we might not need to encounter other intelligent life. But it's an open question. I mean, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think AI could get us all of the way there, or at least some of the dimensions. But yeah, I mean, yeah. greater understanding and greater enjoyment of life. That's what we're all striving towards. Truth and beauty. I mean, pretty much everything in life comes down to that. Yeah. All right. What do you think for a worst into, case? Yeah, worst case. Um, okay, I guess I can start out for, for a worst case. So the worst case scenario, and I only chose this because it's the scariest one to me. But imagine there is intelligent life out there, but it's a predator species. And this predator species is lying in wait until Earth reaches a level of sophistication where we have achieved the singularity and where we are for the first time a threat to their dominion. Or alternatively, they simply want our resources and they've been waiting for waiting for the right time. And the way that they take us over and 
destroy us is the most painful way imaginable. Like imagine if these are, not only are these aliens way far superior to us and have a cold indifference to our lives, but if they actually have some sort of like, like a schadenfreude or like sickness or like, like they like destroying other species, like they get some enjoyment out of it. Like part of what's baked into their, their genetic code is that they get a little rush of dopamine anytime they squash or cause pain on another intelligent life form. That to me is the worst possible case scenario for the future of life beyond Earth. <laughs> to add a little optimism to that, um, if, if they were so evil, I have a hard time believing they would not destroy themselves in the process. That's a good point. I so, mean, I'm not saying this I, is likely at all. I'm just yeah, saying, like, what's the terrible. worst thing I could imagine? Like, to <laughs> me, that's, the, you know, it's like sharks or so, like, I don't know, for whatever reason, there are certain things that just really get at your fear. But um, yeah, no, I agree. It's it's not very likely. Yeah. What do you think, Kip? You know, worst case, maybe not nearly as graphic and horrifying in the sci-fi thriller <laughs> sense of Matt's uh, scenario, but perhaps in just a pathetically tragic sense, I think the worst case would be that we just do ourselves in because of internal human, interhuman conflict and squander a beautiful opportunity to continue existing in this universe when we just decide that we our disagreements among ourselves take priority over the continued persistence of our species uh, you know consciously or subconsciously or you know decidedly or not on purpose or not uh, if we if we bring about our own destruction prematurely that to me would just be the most tragic thing yeah I mean, along the same lines, this is kind of what I was going to say is, let's say that humans actually solve all their internal conflict. Like we, we've made such strong strides, like it's looking up and then just gets wiped out by something stupid like an asteroid or a solar flare or something like that. It seems like that would, that would wipe out everything we've worked for, whereas, um, you know, the other... I don't yeah. know. That like just, we're that almost there. Terrible. We've almost, <laughs> we almost landed on Mars. Oh no, there's an asteroid coming and we can't prevent it. Yeah. Like that would be, that'd be pretty rough too. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think Kip's scenario is the most pathetic. It's like, <laughs> it's come pathetic. on, you guys, like you've made it this far and just because of some disagreements and because of some emotions, you're, you're going to do yourselves in right before all of this greatness that's awaiting yeah. you. Yeah. It would also perhaps be tragic if it's analogous or, you know, uh, informative about other types of technological civilizations that you know, I could just imagine as we're going down you know, like a sinking ship and you think, well, maybe this is what they're all like. So that's part of what gets into the tragic nature of that scenario. Right. Yeah, that would be like the great filter, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think we're, we're getting towards the end. So as we wrap up, I want to ask you guys, what would you say to people who are listening to this as far as how they should act to achieve the best possible outcome? A lot of people say, oh, we've got enough problems here on Earth. We shouldn't be spending money going to outer space. It's all a waste. You know, what would you say to those people? And are there any tips or 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 final words you would give to, to anyone who might be listening to this? 
I say we avoid Kip's scenario and just try to be better people. Hmm. I mean, just learn as much as we can. Try to be scientifically literate. Try to support people even if they don't view your own they don't have the same view as you and then if we're on the same page or at least we can get along with each other Mm -hmm. I would say that resolving internal problems is definitely an important thing to uh, continued persistence of our species and then as far as these all these you know interesting questions we've been discussing this whole time a lot of them just require more careful observation or experimenting and so we just need to continue to do that and like you're saying to the to those who would argue that we have enough problems to tend to here we shouldn't be spending money looking out at the stars or something well to know what we're up against in these scenarios we simply need to do more observation uh, to make more measurements and that requires some investment into something that doesn't give you necessarily an immediate economic return, but the knowledge returned on that is potentially, uh, you know, earth saving, uh, human kind saving in a way. So I would, I would push to continue those programs. Yeah, I agree. And the other, the other thing to consider is that aside from just what we're trying to do with space exploration, there are so many positive effects whenever we're trying to solve some great problem I mean, so much of the technology that we have now, like GPS, for instance, that was part that was, you know, funded by the government for some much greater objective. Same thing as even something as simple as power tools that actually, you know, like a screwdriver that you just press a button and it automatically screws it. That was originally created so that we could go onto the space station where there's no gravity and while you're an astronaut floating around you could fix up part of the spacecraft so i think anytime we're aiming for some huge you know pie in the sky challenge problem that's way out in the distance we're going to make a lot of discoveries that can also help us in the here and now but whenever we narrow our focus to like oh let's just focus on earth let's just focus on our country let's just focus on bringing back the jobs that we're good, nice in the past. Like anytime you do that, you're destined for failure. But anytime you look towards the grand future, you have a much higher likelihood of succeeding and achieving the reality that you want. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much all for listening. This has been the future of life beyond Earth. We are all thank you, Kip, for joining us. And next week we will be discussing the future of transportation. What is currently happening and what will inevitably happen? The past, the present, and the future.